For some reason, the second Sunday of Advent has turned out to be a significant Sunday for me. In the summer of 2007, Bishop James O'Shiel of the Diocese of Southern Nyanza in Kenya um, called Father Alex and asked him to come and, and visit the Diocesan Synod that year in Kenya. And he said, if James will come, meaning me, if James will come, I'll ordain him to the diaconate. I'd met Bishop James previously and discussed this with him, of course. And um, Father Alex gave me a call and said, if you go to Kenya, Bishop James says he'll ordain you to the diaconate. And I said, I don't know what to say. And Alex says, we're supposed to say yes. (laughs) And that was a long, strange trip. I flew into Kenyatta Airport in Nairobi. Someone was supposed to be there to meet me. Nobody was there to meet me. I went outside. There were taxi drivers promising they could take me somewhere. I didn't know what to do. I just sat there on a bench. A policeman came up and said, you will not be sleeping on my sidewalk. And I said, I don't know what to do. And he said, I'll take you to a taxi driver you can trust. And he did. And eventually, a long story, I made it to Homa Bay. In fact, I knew I had to get to Kasumu, which is maybe two hours north of Homa Bay. And so I found out there's an airplane flying to Kasumu, and I guess I could get as close as I could to Homa Bay. And got off the, air, the airport in the Kasumu airport, which is basically a parking lot, and, uh, and uh, didn't know what to do. But there I saw, way on the other end of the parking lot, Bishop James and Father Alex doing like this. They happened to be in Kasumu, so they knew there was a flight coming in from Nairobi, so they stopped by to see if I'd wised up enough to get there, and they did. The second Sunday of Advent, two years later in 2011, was my first Sunday as the vicar of St. Christopher's Anglican Church in Crystal River. The less said about that, the better. I showed up to a very, very troubled parish. Just as a hint, the senior warden is still in prison. He's going to be in prison for another 10 years. And I spent two years trying to rebuild it before closing it down and returning back here. And the second Sunday of Advent in 2018 is the first Sunday I'll be celebrating as a priest with the assistance of a deacon, Deacon Bob, who was ordained just a few weeks ago. So that Sunday keeps coming up in my life for some reason. I'd like to speak to you this morning on the gospel passage, Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist shows up, or he shows up for the second time in Luke's gospel. You may remember he shows up for the first time when he's a baby, actually before he's a baby, before he's even conceived, in that first chapter of Luke. Um, His parents are elderly, his father Zechariah laughs when he's told that his wife will become pregnant, and he's stricken with mutinous for those nine months, and his tongue is loosed when he says his name will be John. John the Baptist is the a big figure in first century Judaism. In fact, if you were writing the story of first century Judaism in the first century, you would spend a lot of time on John the Baptist. We know you would because the guy who did write the history of first century Judaism in the first century, a man named Josephus, writing about the year 76 to 80, um, spends page after page after page on John the Baptist. Page after page about what a great preacher he was, what a great, how he called people to repent. And he says, oh yeah, there's another guy named Jesus, and he was the Messiah, and he died and rose from the dead. And, but um, anyway, let me tell you more about John the Baptist, because you've got to find out about this guy. He was a preacher. You wanted to go see, hear him preach, and John the Baptist was the big name. There's still a group of, of, of believers in, the, in, in the, uh, the swampland of southern Iraq called the Nazarenes. That's not the church of the Nazarene in the United States now. They call themselves the Nazarenes, and they believe that John the Baptist was the Messiah. 
they don't, they don't worship him, they don't pray to him, but they believe that he was the prophet, and if, if everybody followed the teachings of John the Baptist, then, then the kingdom of God would be brought into the world. He's still today in some parts of the world a bigger figure than Jesus. Well, like so many of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist is carefully placed into his historical context here. And Luke does this as a very careful historian. He gives us the titles and names of the political leaders in the cities that he talks about when he's writing about the travels in Acts, for example, or here in Luke. And it's kind of funny to watch the history of, of hypercritical approaches to Luke. People will take a title that he uses for a leader in a certain city and say, well, there's no evidence that title was ever used, so obviously Luke is in error here. And they'll publish this to grand acclaim, and then 30 years later an archaeologist will be digging in a hole and wipe off a plaque, and there it is, the, the exact title that Luke used. If you want to pick at the Bible, go ahead, but don't pick at Luke and Acts, because he's going to be right, Okay. You're going to find something and say, see, that's wrong. And then some archaeologist 30 years later is going to prove that Luke was right the whole time. Well, I'm glad that Luke takes that kind of care uh, for two reasons. First, it reminds us that the story of Jesus takes place in a particular time, in a particular place. It's not a story of Hercules, which takes place back in long time ago land, but it took place in a particular time. And for another reason, it tells about that time. It gives us insight into these times. Several leaders are mentioned in this opening verse, Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Philip, Lysanias, Annas, Caiaphas. And the one takeaway here is that none of these guys are good guys. All these guys are bad guys. Tiberius is the second Roman emperor. He's the adopted son of Octavian Caesar Augustus, who had been emperor when Jesus was born. You remember that from Luke chapter 2 in the reign of Caesar Augustus. The only thing we know about the death of Tiberius is that he was assassinated. There are three different stories of his assassination, but they all agree that he was assassinated. And each of the stories agrees that when it was announced that Tiberius had died, the people of Rome gathered in the streets and shouted, Tiberius to the Tiber, which probably sounds better in Latin. The Tiber River is the big river next to Rome. What they're saying is he should be thrown into the river and not allowed a funeral. That's where criminals and traitors are thrown. His reign was so corrupt, full of moral degradation. Pontius Pilate, you may have heard of him. Everything we know from secular history tells us Pontius Pilate was as cruel a man as the Gospels portray him. Not only in the trial of Jesus, but elsewhere in the Gospels we're told about Pilate's ordering a slaughter right on the Temple Mount, right on the holy grounds of the Temple. And secular historians tell us that this is like Scores of slaughters across his territory. You have the Herodians, a mention of Herod. This is not Herod the Great, this is Herod the Not-So-Great, Herod Jr., and his brother Philip. You might remember some stories connected to Herod and Philip. Herod had stolen Philip's wife. Philip then goes and marries his own sister. This is a family which is a degenerate, morally corrupt, politically corrupt family. Annas and Caiaphas, they're the high priests. That sounds nice but they're also the slick politicians who are going to know how to work Jesus' crucifixion through the legal channels, playing Herod against Pilate. They're the slick priests who will execute a man that they know is innocent to save the, the rest of the people. It's a political disaster. It was dark times, but it had been dark times for a long time, and it's going to be a dark time for a very long time. 
But in the darkness, something happens. What happens in verse 2? The word of God came to John. The word of God came to John. And I think as Luke is writing at least these first three chapters of Luke, he wants us to remember Samuel. The little boy Samuel, if you remember the story from the Old Testament. When Luke closes his discussion of John the Baptist as a child, he says in chapter 1, verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. Even more telling at the end of chapter 2, Luke writes, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And there's almost a direct quote of what the writer t- says about the baby, oh, sorry, about the little boy Samuel, that he grew in stature and in favor with God and man. And in that story of little boy Samuel, remember he's asleep in the temple, and the writer says the word of God came to Samuel. And it also says the word of God was rare in those days. And I think maybe Luke wants us to remember that the word of God had been rare in Samuel's day because there must have been a sense at this time that the word of God was rare. Not Bibles, or at least what we call the Old Testament. There are lots of those. Every village had a synagogue with a reading room set away special for people to come and to sit and to read the Torah and the prophets and the Psalms and to read all those things. But the last of those things had been written 400 years ago. It had been hundreds of years, 400 years since the last of the prophets. And in fact, the last of the prophets was Malachi. We read from Malachi this morning. Where Malachi promises that there'll be one who comes to say, prepare the way of the Lord, the Messiah is coming. Malachi is not just the last book of the Old Testament by coincidence, but it's the last of the prophets. It's the last book of the Old Testament to be written. And for 400 years, parents had told their children, there's going to be someone who comes to say, prepare the way of the Lord, and then the Lord's going to come. And those children grew up and tell their children, someday someone's going to come and say, prepare the way, the Lord is coming. 400 years go by, 400 years of silence. Now, there had been a bit of drama. There's a bit of drama when John the Baptist was born. There's a bit of drama when Jesus was born. But all of that, you see, was 30 years earlier than this. From the last verse of chapter 2 to the first verse of chapter 3 is 30 years worth of time. Flipping your Bible one page goes 30 years. And maybe there were some people who said, what, I wonder whatever happened to Jesus. Don't you remember there was a bunch of excitement when he was born? Shepherds and, and uh, wise men and all that kind of stuff. I wonder whatever happened to him. Someone said, I, I, last I heard he was working as a carpenter down in Capernaum, I think. Somewhere around there. And someone might say, I, I think I heard when he was like 12 years old and he'd go to the temple and talk to people. Someone said, yeah, that was 18 years ago. Or maybe someone says, don't you remember when, when Zechariah, the priest, uh, lost the ability to speak back when John the Baptist was born? I wonder whatever happened to him. And someone says, last I heard, he was out in the desert wearing camel hair off on some health food diet kick. I don't know whatever happened to him. 30 years have gone by when you had that little burst of drama and then 30 years of continued silence. But then we see that the word of God comes to John the Baptist. And what does he do? He reads the Bible to people. 
the same Bible that was in the synagogues, he reads to them from the prophet Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And when he reads that, he's bringing scripture to the people and he applies it to their time. He says, now is the time to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, what is John the Baptist's message? You know, I don't think I saw it this way until I prepared for this sermon. I think if you'd asked me a week ago, what was John the Baptist's message, I would have said, repent. That's what he goes around all the time saying. Repent. Be baptized and repent. As a sign of your repentance, accept this mark of baptism. Repent. But I think that's only the first part of what he says. In verse 3, we have the message that John preaches. He came, we're told, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His message isn't just forgiveness. I'm sorry, his message isn't just repentance. His message is there's forgiveness. Forgiveness is available. His message isn't repentance. His message is forgiveness. It's possible through repentance to achieve forgiveness. Forgiveness is coming. Forgiveness is available. That the end of the story is not repentance. Repentance is the start of the story. Now, I've preached this before. And I'm going to keep preaching it over and over again until I hear it. Did you catch that? I'm going to keep preaching it until I hear it. Anglicans do confession really well. We have a nice liturgy. It's all laid out for us in the prayer book. It's all nice and pretty, and we do confession very well. But how many of us confess the same sin week after week after week after week? We run down our little list, and then we add whatever special happened this week to our usual list. Why? Because we confess, we agree with God, but we don't repent. We're good at confessing because we think we're good at confessing. We think we're good at repentance, but repentance is different. Repentance literally means to turn around. It's when you start walking down the road to anger that you turn around and walk back the other way. It's a decision to start off, oh, no, I'm going to, I'm going to repent. Not get to anger and then come back the next Sunday and confess anger. The point isn't to keep doing that, but to repent, to turn around. As I read the Ten Commandments to you this morning, did you maybe twitch a bit? Because I did, reading it. Inwardly, did you hear little echoes of, hmm, what about that? But the truth is there's forgiveness. Forgiveness that can't be earned because it has to be a gift. And it has to be a gift that costs the giver. A few weeks ago, I used a phrase from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is a simple three-word phrase, forgiveness is suffering. At least that time I listened to my sermon. And I realized, thinking about it, it really is, isn't it? When someone has offended you so deeply and you're brought to a place where you had to forgive them, that's suffering. I told the 8 o'clock group this, and I said I didn't know if I would tell the 9.30 group or not, but I guess I will. There's a man living in North Marion County who hurt me very deeply a while back. 
and he lives in a community in North Marion County. That's the county that I live in. And every once in a while, for years, I'd see in the newspaper and the newspaper online the name of the community, like Fairfield, that's my community, Fairfield man killed in accident. And whenever I'd see that headline, I would say, I hope it was him. And I'd read it hoping it was him who'd been killed. For years I did that. Until I realized when I think of him, I have to pray for him. Not pray for him to die in an accident. Pray for him to be blessed. Why? Because that's what Jesus told me to do. I'll tell you, it is hard. And it hurts. And it's not happy. And in the process of forgiving, I have not found great relief. But I have to do it. I have to do it because I've been forgiven. And when Jesus forgave me, it was out of his suffering. And if I'm going to forgive people like Jesus told me to, I'm going to have to suffer. But what's John's message is that forgiveness is available. And if you hear that forgiveness is available, John says, prepare the way for it. Get out the big bulldozers and the, to- and the dump trucks. Knock those hills out of the way. Fill in the valley. Use the, dr- the dredge from the hills to fill in the valley. Get the road spacing equipment out. Pound that road firm. The places where it's crooked, make it straight. You've got to prepare the way because forgiveness is coming. And when forgiveness comes to you, then you're able to forgive others. That's the message that John is giving. Forgiveness is possible, but it's not just possible over there some way. It's coming. And now, prepare your hearts. Knock down the hills, fill in the valleys, grade the road, make the crooked places straight so that when forgiveness comes, you can receive it and then forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen.